the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast with me, Laura Slattery. On the show this week, we'll be talking about a bruising performance culture inside Amazon and the less bruising but far from perfect performance of Windows 10. Irish Times technology journalist Kira O'Brien will be here later to discuss Microsoft's new Windows 10 upgrade and what it means for the company. But first, would you, or do you, work for a company where almost all of your colleagues can be seen crying at their desk? That detail was just one of many unflattering anecdotes about life at Amazon found in a New York Times feature on the tech giant's workplace culture. The newspaper alleges Amazon is conducting an experiment in how far it can push its white-collar workers and that one of its methods is the so-called rank-and-yank performance reviews. I'm joined by business journalist Charlie Taylor, who writes for World of Work, a page dedicated to the world of work, every Friday in the Irish Times. Charlie, the New York Times pointed to a workplace. It was very much survival of the fittest at Amazon. Can you talk us through a little bit more about what they said? Sure. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon as a whole is very much on the back foot this week. You know, as you mentioned, the New York Times article, it's a 5,000 word piece with uh, interviews with over 100 former and current employees at the company. And it was pretty damning. You know, I mean, it's hard to, you know, there's many people would be questioning why anyone would work for the company this week following the uh, publication of the piece. And it really, you know, it highlighted quite a horrific workplace experience for most people. There were uh, comments about how people were criticised for cutting back on work in order to take care of a person who was dying of cancer. There was staff members, there was staff members who were ordered to go on work trips day after miscarrying twins. It was all pretty gruesome. And as you mentioned, this very much fits in with the sort of rank and yank sort of uh, methodology of ranking staff performance, which become famous with uh, Jack Welch from General Electric back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it was very much a, a system that was based on, you know, you you decide who's who's performing the worst over the year and you just chuck them out and on with the next next batch of people. Because normally redundancies take place when a company is in financial trouble, but this is systematic redundancies. The the sort of the, the people identified as the weakest are, are got rid of every year, even though they may be quite talented people or just somehow managed to be picked upon in this system. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's very much a dog eat dog world. Really, really competitive out there. And often the way to survive is that you do someone else down. So I mean, you know, you know, it, it's interesting that you know uh, the, this sort of rank and yank methodology has been kind of highlighted this week in the New York Times piece because there's so many companies that are actually pulling away from that kind of approach and going for a much more sort of touchy feely idea of how you rank uh, staff performance. So um, I think Accenture is one of those companies, isn't it? That that's moved away from the old style. Um, so what, what, do, what do Accenture say about what they're doing That's now? Right. Yeah, they just mentioned uh, last month, actually, they just said that they're no longer going to proceed with doing uh, annual performance reviews and also they're going to change the ratings with the way they rate people generally. They've, they've said it's not working for them. They spend too many uh, hours trying to get the system in place and trying to just do the uh, the admin work that goes with it. So they're really kind of cutting back on that. They're going for a much more touchy-feely approach that would involve kind of feedback on the go kind of thing and much more sort of collaborative kind of spirit to it all. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I believe they say it. what they want now is to have real-time forward-looking conversations with our people about priorities and how they can grow their strengths, which sounds like HR speak for just simple feedback and <laughs> communication. Very much so. It's kind of a, it's sort of a you know, group hug mentality out there, you know. And, and, you know, it's interesting to see that Accenture is just one of many companies. You know, they're, they're obviously a huge, massive company where I think it's 300,000 employees around the world, including quite a lot in Ireland as well. But they are just one of many companies. Microsoft for years proceeded with the rank and yank kind of system. And there were many people kind of complaining that the reason why Microsoft defaulted in over recent years is in part because of the competitive spirit that that sort of system set up. So they pulled away from it. The likes of Medtronic, Adobe, The Gap, all those companies have kind of gone, no, that's not working for us. And, and, and also, I mean, rather than, you know, it, it not just work, not working, there are actually some people saying that these systems actually damage performance. Very much so. I mean, you know, the, you know, if, if you've got people focusing purely on how to get through to the next, you know, to the end of the year, it's all about how can I look better than my colleagues? So rather than, you know, everyone pulling together as a whole and working as a team, it's very much the opposite of that. So, I mean, presumably one of the supposed merits of performance reviews in HR circles is that they might have a kind of veneer of being objective, hard data, but um, they can be contested, can't they, after the fact by by workers who feel they've been victimised? Yeah, very much. You know, I mean, particularly from a worker point of view, it's often been seen as a sort of box ticking exercise you know and I think even now on the HR side they're beginning to see that and particularly you know I mean we had a case last year in which uh, Google Island found themselves under the cost with an employee that took them to the employees appeal tribunal uh, saying that they had been deliberately given you know that their the ranking they had been assigned was too low and it had been uh, tweaked to, to show too low and they actually won the case in that situation you know so I mean as well as not being great in terms of ranking people, it's also a big loss to the company overall, you could say. Yeah, because they had a kind of a grading on a bell curve system. So mm. somebody's always going to lose out under that system. Exactly. It's very much like, you know, you can only do well if someone else does badly in comparison mm. to you. I mean, I you know, I found the New York Times uh, article fascinating. I mean, it, w- it was really in- insightful, I think. And I know that the, the, the paper's public editor has since said, well, it's only really full of anecdotes, really. You know, what does that add up to? And in return, the editor of the paper, Dean Becquet, say, well, anecdotes are, in fact, the only way we can, um, you know, do stories like this is, is to talk to as many people as possible and get their anecdotes. So, I mean, what do you feel about how, how, how the article has been received? Yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, I was reading just yesterday that apparently it, the article itself has had the most comments ever on a New York Times uh, article on in the comments section in the New York Times, uh, which says a lot about, you know, the, the kind of controversy is stirred. You know, Jeff Bezos obviously came out very quickly he didn't deny the allegations, which was interesting. He, he kind of come out and said he was shocked to hear of them and that he would be he would question himself whether he had worked for a company that did act in the way that it was portrayed in the New York Times. Now, he didn't really, you know, you know, he suggested anyone that did experience anything sort of like mentioned in the article to bring it straight up to HR's uh, attention and try and deal it with it that way. Other members of Amazon did come out and kind of say, well, actually, that's not the way 
it is like working for Amazon. You know, some of them have said, you know, it's much more friendlier, much more uh, trying to get a work-life balance for staff, etc. You know, and there were, uh, you know, but interestingly enough, there were also there some that were kind of going, this is about survival of the fittest. If you want to work for a company that's as groundbreaking as Amazon, that's leading the way in technology, although the likes of Google, etc. and Tesla, I'm sure, would uh, argue the toss on this, you know, yeah. you know, but the, the, the Amazon line is very much that. Then this is the kind of environment you have to put yourself in. This is this is the way it is. You know, you work all those hours, you give up your weekends, work-life balance goes out the window, etc. But this is this is where I part company with, with the billionaire Jeff Bezos, um, because I just think this is all counterproductive, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, there's only so much uh, energy and stamina that any human being ha- has. I mean, these companies say things like, when you hit the wall, you climb the wall. And that's, that's an Amazon <laughs> saying, yeah, according yeah. to The New York Times. Um, recently, there was a job ad for Storyful that said it was looking for somebody with an unmatchable work rate. <laughs> is there any way we can stop this language? <laughs> can we stop this culture? The dream is that, that you could. But I mean, especially when there's HR involvement in these things, you know, that, and the move towards more sort of data driven management kind of makes that kind of more and more unlikely of anything. You know, but it is interesting, you know, Amazon, uh, they very few uh, females at the, uh, you know, on the C-suite, as they call it, at the executive level. And arguably, you know, you could say if, if, if you foster a work culture that's very much about work is everything, there's no time for anything else, then, you know, possibly women and other people as well are going to sit there and kind of go, I don't want to play that game. Yeah, anyone with any kind of caring responsibility or any kind of outside life or interest, you know, somebody who just doesn't want to spend 24 hours thinking about work. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's people perhaps in their 20s who are just out of college and just starting off and all fired up. But I mean, you know, most people, once they're in relationships, once they have children, etc., they don't necessarily want to give up all their time, despite maybe being extremely committed to, to their work. Yeah. So I guess it is the difference between Amazon calls it its workers Amazonians. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is another name, isn't there? Amabots. <laughs> yes, if, if, very if much so. Yeah. A and successful I, Amazon worker is an, is an Amabot. Yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe that's the only way to survive in Amazon, you know? OK. OK. So this uh, article and um, the reaction to it, it's prompted a new wave of people saying they plan to boycott Amazon or perhaps they already do. Um, but it isn't the first negative account of its workplace conditions, is it? This, I mean, this one is on uh, focusing on, on, on white-collar workers, but there's been other kind of whispers about Amazon in the past. Mm, ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, as they, as they would say, sort of on EastEnders, you know, Amazon of previous in, in, in this case. You know, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, and one of the things that is possibly getting missed with this story is it's very easy to get furious about white-collar workers and how they're being treated at Amazon. But the real story is is about how Amazon has treated uh, blue collar workers in the past. You know the staff that are working on uh, in their warehouses or their uh, fulfillment centres, as they love calling them, which is ironic given that most of the staff working there feel anything but. Um, you know, and what you know, there's been horrific cases. You know, there was a BBC reporter went undercover at an Amazon plant in Wales in 2013 and found himself walking 11 miles over the course of a ten ten and a half hour shifts. And he was expected to handle a new order every 33 seconds. You know, there was also someone, a reporter went undercover in Pennsylvania at a factory there, uh, Amazon Warehouse. And, you know, there there was, you know, this was a particularly famous story where people were fainting under during the temperatures and they ended up having an ambulance on call outside to kind of 
rescue workers that were fainting on the job, you know. So, I mean, you know, and it's very easy, say, for the white collar uh, workers, particularly in an era when tech workers are, are really sought after and it's hard to get those guys and girls, you know, that are really at the cutting edge of stuff to, you know, it's there, it's easy for them to move on and get another job somewhere else. But is it the same case for people who are working on $11, you know, $11 an hour in, in difficult situations. Yeah, so for the white-collar workers, other other elite tech companies are available. But, you know, other the, the blue-collar workers who are the ones doing the manual labour um, may be um, living in areas that just have fewer employers and there's, there's less choice. Mm, very much so, you know. And I mean, I think, you know, if, if anyone's casting a BDI on things, you know, and if anyone's threatening to boycott Amazon over, you know, what they're hearing now and seeing now, you know, it may be that they should be keeping in mind what's happening with blue collar workers rather than, you know, the poor white collar workers who obviously have had a tough time of it as well, according to the New York Times anyway. Thanks very much, Charlie. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you with our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, if you're a PC user, you'll have probably have received a little message from Microsoft recently asking you to schedule your upgrade to Windows 10, its new operating system. Kira O'Brien, our technology expert, is here. Now, Kira, is this one of the good windows or the bad windows? So it's, um, it depends on which side of the fence you're sitting on. For a lot of people, it's going to be a good Windows upgrade. For people who are concerned about privacy and want to keep an eye on exactly what uh, they're sending off to different companies, it may not be such a great upgrade. Uh, I think for a lot of people, anything has got to be better than Windows 8. That was its last one. That was its last one. I mean, and if you look at Microsoft's upgrades to Windows, their, their updates to Windows, they kind of follow a pattern where you can get a good one, then you get a bad one. So if you look back, say, the last few years, um, Windows 2000, people really liked it. Windows ME, not so much. Then XP, people liked it so much. Apparently, well, they, they, they ended up liking it so much that you know there's still people with it on their laptops. Um, and then that was followed by Vista, which probably was a bit of a bomb. Appalling well, Vista, I seem to remember the headlines. Yes, it was. It wasn't the most popular. And then they followed Windows 7, which was leaps and bounds ahead of it. And then Windows 8 came along. Um, I think Windows 8, Windows 8's problem was that mainly it tried to do too much too soon. Um, and it people just rebelled against it. They took away the start menu. They made it so that it would be very friendly for touchscreen computers or tablets, but not an awful lot of people had those to start with. Now they're a bit more common. You know, people are, are getting used to that whole idea that their laptop might actually have a touchscreen now as well, to the point where when I use my laptop that doesn't have a touchscreen, I'm actually trying to hit the screen. So it, And I, I'm not unique in that. I know quite a lot of people who've said the same thing. So Windows 10... You might notice that they completely skipped Windows 9, by the way. They've, they've, they've just... It doesn't just exist. It doesn't exist. Windows 9 doesn't exist. It's Windows 10. And it's cleaner. It's They brought back the start menu. It's um, just a much better release all around. But there are those privacy concerns. 
So, and that's been in the news lately that, you know, you, you, that, that maybe you don't know what, what you're letting Microsoft know about what you do. Exactly. I mean, I think there's, there's two ways to look at it. There's the way you can look at it is that Microsoft are trying to get all this information from you and you don't know about it. And the other way you can look at it is this is the way everything is going. And if you want personalised services, this is what you, the trade-off is. If you want free services, this is what the trade-off is. So it, it depends and it comes down to what value you put on your personal information. Now, to put it in context, um, a lot of what Microsoft is asking for from users is stuff that you already give away every time you use Gmail or you upload a photograph to Facebook or Instagram or you send a message on Facebook Messenger. It's giving them information like their location, your location. It's giving them um, access to speech data, maybe even handwriting recognition. For some people, that's going to be a te- step too far. Uh, but you can disable or dial back an awful lot of it. I mean, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that, for example, as soon as you start up Windows 10, you hit the start menu, um, information is sent back to Microsoft. Now, a lot of that is diagnostics um, f- and feedback. Now, you can cut down the, the feedback to practically nothing. You can cut down the diagnostics down to basic information. Microsoft needs to know, from their point of view, they need to know what apps you're using and whether or not they're working properly. That's what they're going to get from that information. So maybe it might be of concern to somebody who is using an app, perhaps an illegal uh, copy of something, that uh, they don't want Microsoft to be interfering in that usage. There was some talk about how Microsoft can actually use Windows 10 if, if you're using something that it considers pirated, that it can actually disable or limit access to it. It's To be honest, I think the idea that Microsoft is scanning your entire desktop um, I'm trying to hunt out your, your pirated yeah. games or whatever. I think that might be slightly overblown. Just it hasn't to, got time for that, I presume. No. Well, I, th- I don't think they're... Uh, I, well, I'm, I'm going to make a massive assumption that they don't really care as long as it's not their software. Um, it's something that they've had the ability to do, say, like with the Xbox. The X, um, X, Xbox Live can look for uh, games that are not genuine mm-hmm. Xbox games and it can kill access to them. But that's just... I mean. Microsoft has has a skin in that game. You know, they want the genuine games going out there. They get money from those. Whereas if you're if you're installing some random piece of software that is nothing to do with them, I don't think they're really going to be all that concerned about it. But this upgrade, uh, Microsoft is essentially putting its hands up and saying, you know, you're right. Uh, all you tech journalists are right. We made a big mistake with with Windows 8. We introduced things that people really hated, and this is us giving you. Uh, what you want. Well, Microsoft had to roll back uh, on a few of those changes with Windows 8.1 because originally, you know, the, the start button was gone. It was replaced with a start menu. And I think it's less the tech journalists and the analysts and more the consumer reaction to it because people really didn't take to Windows 8 at all. As I said, it was great if you had a touch screen device, but... Otherwise, you, you were, ignored all those bits. Yeah, you had... To, with, with a laptop, It with the original Windows 8 was quite... Well, not, I wouldn't say unusable, but it was quite difficult to use. Um... They rolled back an awful lot of that with Windows 8.1. You still had that start screen, but you had bits where you could boot straight to the desktop, whereas on Windows 8, the desktop was an app that you had to actually select. You could do make small changes. Like They actually brought back a start button that would bring you straight to the start menu, what's well, the start screen rather than the start menu. And they also um, they, they, they changed it so you could have the desktop background the same as your start menu background. So it wasn't as much of a jarring kind of leap between the two. Windows 10, it takes it that bit further. It's more like Windows 7 than Windows 8. You can customise your start menu. You can pin things to it like you could with the start screen on Windows 8.1. But 
it's for all intents and purposes, it's a lot more familiar to people who've been using Windows 7 than um, 8 XP and previous versions than they would have been for people who are using Windows 8. So, I mean, it sometimes feels like tech companies are, are better than other sectors at correcting mistakes, but do they do so quickly enough, do you think? They can do, but um, I suppose it depends on the mistake. There's a lot of talk about uh, the Android flaw, stage fright. Google patched that within a couple of days of it coming out, but then it's up to the individual companies, the, the Samsungs, the LGs, Sonys, to actually push their version of the software with the update out to their users. Now, some of the companies think Cyanogen's software went out fairly quickly, so their users weren't vulnerable to it, but other people are still waiting. So it, it depends, really. It, it, I think... Companies now have to be more aware that with social media, I mean, if you're looking at, say, a Windows release 10 years ago, social media didn't exist. Um, so you're, you really were looking at uh, maybe articles in newspapers, articles online, but there wasn't that level of engagement where people could share ideas that quickly and kind of, I suppose... A, Snowball, a, really, Yes, isn't it? it kind of comes together as a, a, you know, one person saying something online somewhere, you know, that's one thing. But when there's a couple hundred thousand people tweeting about it, that quickly becomes something that's trending, that gets picked up and, you know, companies are being talked about um, in a much, I suppose, much more effective way than they would have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So um, Microsoft uh, chief executive Satya Nadella says he wants to move from people needing Windows to choosing Windows to loving Windows. Is that possible, do you think? Will we ever love Windows or is it just a a functional operating system that gets the job done? I think, um, I don't think Windows, not at the moment anyway, inspires the same level of devotion as Macs do, as OS X. You you try and criticise OS X to a Mac user and you'll find... Um, nine times out of ten, yeah, they, they won't agree with anything that you say. I, I've I've done. I'm a Mac user myself. I use Mac. I use Windows. I can kind of see that the flaws in both. But for a lot of people, uh, Mac is the, the pinnacle of everything. You know, it doesn't. It's not as vulnerable to malware because it's just not there. Though obviously, in recent weeks, that the, it's been demonstrated that that's actually you know that there is malware out there. Um, yeah, it's had it's had its own problem in recent weeks. Yeah, Thunderstrike too. I mean, this was this got massive attention because all of a sudden people are realizing, well, Max can get viruses and worms. Now, to be fair, that was also slightly overblown in that um, it was a theoretical thing. It was created in a lab, created by researchers. It wasn't in the wild, though. It's a very short step from something being created in a lab to somebody thinking, how can I exploit this? In that case, it was a bit more serious because. It was a firmware worm. And when it comes to your your computer, what you've got, you've got your firmware and you've got your operating system and your antivirus will scan your operating system and all your files and all your USB sticks for malicious software. What it won't scan is the firmware because the firmware is kind of like the core of your computer. It will tell it what to do. It tells it what to start up when you turn it on. Um, so... They found a way to actually spread this firmware worm uh, through infected accessories. So you could have a Mac that was never connected to the internet, ever, would never be connected to the internet, and that could still get infected because you could use um, a Thunderbolt adapter, um, plug it in, the firmware worm can actually live on that, and then it can spread from computer to computer. And in a way, this sounds like a much more serious problem than perhaps the, those, the bugs that, that some Microsoft users have encountered. Well, that particular problem... It wasn't just limited to Apple. Thunderstrike 2 was actually an Apple thing, but the actual underlying problem, the, mm. the firmware issues, were also seen in Windows computers as well because 
the particular type of, of technology that Thunderbolt uses is not limited just to Macs. It can be used across a different operating systems. So it was just the way it was. It was the way it was patched. It was the way it was handled. And it was, obviously, then it was terrifying because people thought Macs are. And people will often tell me Macs can't get viruses, which is not true and has been proven in the past. It's just that there's not the same amount of malware there. Yeah, so I mean, for the average user, it just wants something reliable. I mean, it is it is pretty scary, I guess. But the, but but there's no cost to upgrading to uh, Windows 10 if you have, no. if you already have Windows. If well, if you have Windows 7 and Windows 8 or an 8.1, you can upgrade for free for the next year. Basically, it came out on July 28th, so for a year from that date, it's free to upgrade. So I would say anybody who's actually who's considering it, I mean, apply for the upgrade. You don't have to install it. Um, wait a few months, see how it works out. If you're happy using Windows 7 or Windows 8, I mean, there's no real need to upgrade yeah. right now. I mean, it, it may be that you want something that Windows 10 has, maybe like Cortana, which is the digital assistant on Windows 10. It's like, um, it's the version it's of Siri. Siri. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, Microsoft says it's a bit smarter than Siri. It's built into the laptop instead of just on the mobile device. Um if you're using a Microsoft account, all your information is linked anyway, so so Cortana will actually learn the more you use it. Um, it's an interesting idea. I have to be honest, I'm not a massive user of Siri myself, um, even with yeah. the updated versions. Digital voice assistants, just you don't need them in your life? No, not really. Um, it's nothing to do with privacy. It's just I'm, I find it weird talking to my phone. Um, I always feel slightly affected uh, by picking up my phone and asking my phone where um, where the nearest garage is or you know where what my next appointment is. I'm not really all that bothered. I can just find the information myself. But then a lot of people will actually use. It. I sat beside somebody on a plane who insisted on using Siri to dictate all his messages. Most annoying thing in the world. So, I mean, really, I mean, all, I think we all want to feel that these upgrades are for our benefit and not for the company's benefit. But, but I suppose my final question is, you know, will Windows 10 benefit Microsoft? Will it make a difference to the company and where it goes next? Well, Microsoft originally would have charged for these upgrades, like a lot of... of it, it's, a, it's a huge difference between... Windows, it's, it's, it's not just like a service pack. It's an actual different operating system. Um they were only charging Windows XP and below users uh, for it. So they will get probably get some revenue from it. It's going to be interesting to see the impact it has on their bottom line. But it's kind of it's, it's indicative of the way that Microsoft has gone uh, under its new CEO. I mean, he wants it to be mobile first, cloud first. There's a lot of cloud features in Windows 10. Um, obviously, then it will work across all devices. It will work on tablets. It's going to work on phones. Um, you could, in theory, use your phone as a PC because you all you need is a, a keyboard um, and you can pretty much do anything on your phone then when the version for, for a Windows phone actually comes out. Um, it's going to be an interesting time, I think. It's an interesting experiment for Microsoft, uh, but I think it is very uh, telling of the way that the entire industry is working. I mean, the idea that your PC is your main way of accessing the internet, that's completely gone. PC sales, you know, that they haven't kept pace with what they would have 15 years ago. Everybody is moving to more mobile devices. This is Microsoft's way of tapping into that. Okay, thank you very much, Kira. I'm sure we'll be talking about Microsoft again in the future, but for now, thanks very much. 
That's it for this week's edition of the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. You've been listening to Charlie Taylor, Kira O'Brien and me, Laura Slattery. Sound engineering today was by Rob O'Sullivan and this podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. You can find all our business stories, interviews and analysis on irishtimes.com and on the Irish Times apps. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>